Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times, occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April the 2nd, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Three excellent guests this week. First and well known to the Twill listener is Rachel Reboucher, professor of law and associate dean for research at Temple University, where she teaches family law, healthcare law, and contracts. Present, she's writing a book on reproductive health for NYU Press and editing a Cambridge University Press collection of rewritten family law opinions for the Feminist Judgment series. She's a co-investigator on two grant-funded research projects related to uh, reproductive health, uh, one housed at the Emory University Rowland School of Public Health, another funded by the WHO. Her research uh, addresses relational contracts, prenatal genetic testing, genetic counseling, collaborative divorce, parental involvement laws, and international reproductive productive rights. Patty Schuster is a senior legal advisor at IPAS, a nonprofit dedicated to improving reproductive rights. There she develops innovative projects on the law, human rights, and abortion care, and researches U.S. foreign policy, legal risk in humanitarian settings, abortion with pills, and other emergent legal issues. Prior to working at IPAS, uh, she worked on reproductive health policy in the office of U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer. She also con conducted field research on the impact of U.S. foreign policy in Africa and Asia for PIA and the Center for Reproductive Rights. Currently, she teaches health and human rights in Penn's MPH program and is also a fellow at Temple University's Center for Public Health Law Research. Last but not least, Adrian Garashi is a program manager at the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple. Her work focuses on the intersection of laws and reproductive and sexual health, including the regulation of abortion in the U.S. and globally. She manages an array of legal epidemiology and public health law research projects, working with collaborators such as the CDC, WHO, and so on. Prior to joining the center, she was a legal fellow at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, she currently serves as chair on the Philadelphia chapter board of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Welcome all three of you. A little background to the discussion, and I'm so glad I have so many wonderful experts uh, on the show. During the COVID-19 pandemic, as we've seen various federal laws, state laws, guidances, and so on. We've seen a series of gubernatorial orders. States, I believe, including Ohio, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Alabama, and Texas, that have included abortion procedures in lists of non-essential surgeries. And this is ostensibly, I say ostensibly with a sense of irony because we've all been in the trap law uh, space, haven't we? Ostensibly to free up medical supplies for COVID-19 patients. And so we're going to take a couple of swings at that from a few different perspectives. I think first starting off talking a little bit about maybe a little more detail on some of uh, these uh, provisions and, and the extent to which they are laws as opposed to sort of gubernatorial uh, statements. Uh, I, I, I say that because my state, Indiana, has sort of a non-ban ban. Someone questioned um, our governor um, about his directive on non-essential surgeries the other day, and uh, he repeated the directive's latter part, which suggested that it was a restriction, but then said, but in every case, I would leave it up to the doctor to determine and decide the patient's care. So I think, you know, actually looking at sort of, if you like, the legal valence 
of some of these state actions, in quotes, might also be useful? Well, I think that you've really put your finger on part of the problem, which is that states growing by the day, Indiana being the newcomer to the cohort of states that are listing abortion services as non-essential elective services banned uh, until for the next month for COVID-19 emergency measures, they're doing it in different ways. Uh, So in Texas, one of the first states to make this move, uh, the governor announces that it would follow federal directive and conserving medical supplies and personal time by banning non-essential medical services. And then the attorney general interprets that to include abortion as a non-essential service. And so the force of that order is an executive order. And the challenge that has come forward from Planned Parenthood, Center for Reproductive Rights organizations is not around the scope of the executive power to suspend non-essential surgeries, surgical interventions, or conserve medical time uh, gear is around the effect of including abortion in that list. So the, the legal effect is an interesting one because then you have, like your state, where a governor makes an announcement and then tax on and abortion is included, but there's really been no definitive statement by an attorney general or by a medical board or by another health agency about what that temporary suspension of non-essential services means. So there's really a range of how states have incorporated abortion in these bans. And some of them, as you note, left the decision to a physician. Uh, is it essential? Is it a procedure that cannot be delayed? But then some have been in very explicit in how they've addressed abortion. Texas, again, for example, made it very clear that abortion was to be suspended unless the abortion was necessary to save the uh, pregnant woman, woman's life or preserve her health. So there really is a, a, an interesting mix of, of, of how states are uh, incorporating abortion in COVID-19 bans. I mean, I suppose glibly, to an extent, pregnancy termination is elected. But in another sense, in the real world, with the clock running, it's not. Well, that's what Judge Eagle said on the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas, the district court that, sh- that said the, the, the attorney general's interpretation of the governor's order couldn't stand as a matter of constitutional law. You know, he, he wrote essentially, well, he wrote a delay in obtaining abortion care causes irreparable harm by resulting in the progression of a pregnancy at a stage at which an abortion would be less safe and eventually illegal. So, you know, there there is uh, there is this interesting tension of uh, abortion being, quote unquote, a choice, which Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas, has reminded us all. That, uh, uh, but at the same time, it's clearly an essential service for those seeking to terminate pregnancies and those who do not want to be parents or who will resort to extra legal methods, though sometimes safe and effective. There is long term harm, social, financial, that makes the term elective meaningless and really forces us to think about the essential nature of abortion care. Yeah, um, to talk about the other the other side of that, that the need for uh, healthcare resources to be devoted to abortion care. Uh, we work, I pass, my organization works in the global south where healthcare systems are a lot simpler, of course. Um, and, um, and just to talk about WHO recommendations for how abortions need to take place, uh, really 
don't require much for in terms of medical resources. Uh, two methods really to, to put them out there um, for ending a pregnancy. The work, first is aspiration abortion, which requires an aspirator, either an electric one, an a electric aspirator or a, med uh, a manual vacuum aspirator, which can be used where there isn't even electricity. But then there's this other method of abortion, which is safe and recommended and, um, and legal in the U.S., and that's abortion with pills. Um, the preferred method of abortion with pills are the drugs mifepristone and misoprostol, but misoprostol alone is also recommended and cheaply and widely available all over the world. Uh, medical abortion pills can be taken without a visit to a healthcare provider. And, um, and they can be taken through telemedicine. Uh, we've seen some different countries start to loosen restrictions on telemedicine. The UK government issued a directive that, uh, that abortion would no longer require a visit to a healthcare facility, um, a requirement that was in place before um, due to the COVID crisis. So we're seeing a little bit of loosening of restrictions on telemedicine. And so telemedicine is certainly one, um, one way to um, to preserve health resources in order to devote them to the um, to the coronavirus, but also there is, as um, as Rachel mentioned, uh, self managed abortion. Self managed abortion, by definition, is uh, when someone who wants to end a pregnancy does so without interacting with the with the uh, healthcare system, without a visit to a doctor or other healthcare professional, but with the right information and access to follow up care if needed. A person can end a pregnancy safely, clinically safely without, um, can end a pregnancy clinically safely without having to have that initial visit with a healthcare provider. Uh, where we work, where IPASS works, that's, that's really been um, something that we're exploring. It's really key when we can preserve um, preserve healthcare resources by, um, by self-managed abortion. Of course, um, that incurs legal risk, uh, particularly in the United States, where, um, where self-managed abortion isn't legal, where there is interaction with uh, health Healthcare system required in order to have a legal abortion, um, but still, it does have a special place here um, when when governments are focused on on containing the virus, treating people with the virus. Um, abortion does not, uh, from a clinical perspective, does not need to take away um, any of those resources, whether it be reducing the burden on the healthcare system by telemedicine or only involving a provider um, if if needed for follow up care. I guess the distinction you 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 draw between clinical and SMA also raises, I guess, both in the the, the uh, literal sense and, and in the legal sense, a sort of a vagueness question about some of these declarations by governors, by states, by attorneys general, and so on. From what you read, see, was is there an intention to include SMA in this, let's, let's call it ban, essentially, on abortions during COVID? I don't know if there's an attention on SMA specifically, but certainly SMA is banned um, by virtue of regulations on abortion that are um, that are overly burdensome, that create a lot of healthcare requirements, create a lot of requirements that aren't actually clinically needed. Uh, I'll mention here.
year that the um, Center for Public Health Law Research and IPASS just today released a map um, and a data set on global abortion laws that relate to self-managed abortion. And what that does is investigate how abortion laws that were created really to regulate a more complicated procedure apply to self-managed abortion in ways that clinically are nonsensical. And there are requirements um, such as a doctor has to provide an abortion or an abortion has to take place in a certain medical facility. And that's true of state laws as well, that these laws um, from a clinical perspective don't make sense and um, and ban self-managed abortion. So even if SMA isn't in the um, intention of the efforts to restrict abortion, it's already, um, it's already something that um, isn't allowed in the U.S. But it's interesting because the number, uh, just to, to follow to Patty's point, is that the many of these policies, the, the, let's take Texas as an example again, they include medication abortion in their COVID bans. And so the, the rationale is to preserve protective equipment for physicians and to conserve physician and healthcare professional time. For aspiration abort, abortion, it's not surgical. There's no incision. You need uh minimal staff. There's, there's not, there's no, uh, general anesthesia administered. So it's, um, it's, it's not a complex or, uh, a burdensome procedure for healthcare professionals. And, and for that reason, it uses comparatively minimal equipment that could otherwise be used in other procedures. But for medication abortion, there is no protective equipment used. I mean, it's a, it's a, you take a, a drug regimen of two pills. These two pills require no masks, no gowns. And the only physician time that is required for the purpose of medication abortion is imposed by law. So per Patty's point, it's imposed by a law that regulates medication abortion almost as if it was like a aspiration abortion or an abortion requiring instrumentation. And it, it, it really makes no sense in a lot of ways. So medication abortion could be done entirely through telehealth, but it's not because states don't allow it to be. Uh, and now, we see on top of bans of abortion for as an essential health service, uh, we see states like Ohio now proactively banning any teleabortion, any telehealth approaches for abortion delivery. Well, I suppose from a political standpoint, SMA has to be included in the definition of abortion because otherwise the gig's up, right? I mean, that's the, the, the future is to go essentially to SMA and avoid these crazy state-by-state uh, -state politicized regulations. Right. So just like you were alluding to, long before COVID-19 showed up, states have been regulating medication abortion this way. So states often don't distinguish between procedural or so-called surgical abortion versus abortion with pills. And so these heavy burdens that regulate procedural abortion legally are applied to medication abortion despite the fact that medically it's completely unnecessary. And, you know, we saw this with the battle over trap laws, which had gone to the Supreme Court and was ruled on in Whole Woman's Health in 2016, which is that states were applying these burdensome trap laws, um, such as requiring, you know, hospital-like standards for facilities, regardless of whether people were providing medication, abortion, or procedural. Self-managed abortion is often medication abortion that you are not, uh, you are not under the oversight 
side of physician. Whereas medication abortion, as as we've been describing it, is regulated by states and requires physician oversight as a, a point of federal law, but as a, also, as Adrian just mentioned, as a point of state law. And that is a two-dose regimen that has a physician component to it. And so one of the tensions that we're describing is moving to a tele-abortion model in which there is potentially physician involvement, but that involvement is done remotely. So you are getting follow-up care online. You have the drugs dispensed prescribed to you from a physician. You pick them up at a health center. If FDA, if the FDA standard of federal law changed, you had the mail to you. That's not a possibility at this time. And then you consult virtually, uh, remotely with a uh, with your physician. So I just wanted to distinguish that. And Adrian, Patty, let me know. You know, chime in if I've muddled it. I remember back in I was it 2013, 2014, something like that. The the litigation in Iowa about the the remote telehealth unlocking of medication and so on that I think went up to the Iowa Supreme Court in the end. Can you maybe sketch out, Adrian, what the country looks like um, from a sort of a you know, your, your legal epi um, research as to the various types of regulation of clinical abortions as opposed to telehealth, uh, SMA, and so on? Is there a, a sort of a picture you can paint for us? Yeah, I can. Um, so our center actually tracks a, a large variety of these abortion regulations across the 50 states and D.C., um, in the abortion law project. And so the database also looks at laws that apply specifically to medication abortion. Um, and what we have seeing as, you know, telehealth and medication abortion delivery in that way is sort of the future. We have states that explicitly ban the use of telehealth for abortion, and they, they call out abortion specifically in the laws. Um, and they also have requirements such as physician-only laws or explicit in-person and laws for the administration of medication abortion that create these legal barriers um, despite not being medically necessary. As I mentioned before, we um, investigated with Center for Public Health Law Research and Adrian and her team how global laws relate to self-managed abortion, uh, finding that self-managed abortion is essentially illegal everywhere in the world as it is in the U.S. That is, there is a physician required in some states in the U.S. We're, we're learning it's required via telemedicine and others telemedicine is banned, but some type of physician involvement or involvement from another healthcare professional is required in order for an abortion to be legal. So we're really seeing that self-managed abortion, although its clinical safety is established and increasingly evidence is showing uh, the, the safety of self-managed abortion, still it yet remains um, illegal uh, and, and subject to criminal penalties in um, in more countries in the world than not and also to add that self-managed abortion is uh, is a um, is a method of abortion if we can call it a method on its own that really is a last resort for some people but also for some people it's not a last resort some people would prefer and I'm talking globally specifically but also in the US some some people who want to end their pregnancies would prefer to do it without interacting with the healthcare system and um, that might be because of historical bias or, uh, or vulnerable groups who may have had bad experiences with healthcare systems. We, um, we see people who don't have access to healthcare. So self-managed abortion 
Uh, we don't have good data on it because it's um, essentially clandestine, but um, but the the factors that contribute to vulnerabilities um, also contribute to, to people being unable to access healthcare systems. And of course, uh, abortion is completely illegal in many countries or various restrictions that we have in the U.S. and that make it hard to um, access also turn um, turn people to self-managed abortion for a variety of reasons. And, and we do see its use growing as um, knowledge is increasing that these pills can be used to terminate a pregnancy. It's not affecting every everybody equally like most like most restrictions on um, on abortion or most restrictions in general. It's really um, folks who are left out of the healthcare system in general might need to turn to these methods or or have um, been alienated from the healthcare system for various reasons. Do your does your team or do you know of of research teams who have been sort of modeling um, what might be happening to women and their reproductive rights and their healthcare as the pandemic grows and as both healthcare shortages, desperate shortages occur, but also we have these reactive laws placed. I mean, what what what's the sort of the picture that you are sort of staring at? There's a really interesting study undertaken of, about what the what the country would look like if abortion became illegal in many states. So if the Supreme Court overturns Casey Roe, uh, let's say June Medical Services comes down in, in June and uh, the court takes it as an opportunity to allow states to decide whether or not to entirely ban abortion or to permit abortion. And that uh, map says something, you know, basically paints a picture of how the abortion deserts would characterize the country. To your question, we know we know quite a bit about the logistical barriers to abortion access that many people in the country face. And we can infer from the barriers that already exist for people seeking abortion care that COVID only exacerbates the problems for the for those who are already vulnerable to state regulations and restrictions on abortion. So if you think about whole women's health and the restrictions on uh, privileges and ambulatory surgical centers and the effects that that had in closing clinics and in narrowing the options that women had and increasing the distances they had to drive. Well, those were burdens that the Supreme Court said uh, created an undue burden in light of laws that had no health benefit. Well, here we have a ban on all abortions, except again, a Texas example, except in extreme cases to save a life or health, forcing providers to shut down by and large, driving uh, patients to other states, to places where these bans are not enforced at a time when we should be staying at home, uh, at a time when people are increasingly out of work, cannot rely on public transportation, are caring for children without schools, daycares. It is uh, it is an astonishingly cruel policy that will hurt the most marginalized and exacerbate the barriers that, that pop- those populations already face 
in in seeking abortion care. I was reading the news today, and there there are not scientific studies yet of how much distance and what will happen, and what has been the economic or emotional strain imposed as these measures get implemented. But there is the evidence presented by clinics themselves who are canceling hundreds of appointments for fear of uh, criminal liability and fear of being subject to fines, and recounting the desperation the patients who have now had appointments canceled have expressed. And I think uh, there's a a point to be made here about the unique political characteristics of abortion in that, for example, uh, in areas that I've been working on lately, such as substance use treatment uh, drugs, which are themselves controlled substances, treatment drugs, there has been tremendous work done over the last couple of weeks by HHS, by DEA, SAMHSA to liberalize access to these controlled substances, taking away barriers and that seems to be in stark comparison to uh, what we're discussing. So I thought, Rachel, maybe um, let's push you a little bit into the the weeds of Governor Abbott's executive order banning most elective abortions um, and tell us about the district court ruling and then the two to one decision by the Fifth Circuit. I would just add to the point you just made, maybe as a um as a follow-up, it, it really should be emphasized that, uh, like your example of controlled substances, the federal government and states are expanding telemedicine as a response to COVID-19. The federal government, in its in the relief bill that was just signed into law, is pumping money into states, into rural health centers, into federally qualified health centers to try to build and expand upon telehealth programs. Uh, states are loosening restrictions on telehealth, uh, on the delivery of, of services through telehealth and telemedicine approaches. And that stands in stark contrast to the explicit and implicit moves on the parts of states to exceptionalize abortion in that regard. So Texas is another is a good example because the same time you have health officials and the governor and the attorney general interpreting abortion as a non-essential service, you have the Texas Medical Board freeing up physicians to deliver telemedicine for diagnosis, for treatment, not just for consultation. So there's a there's there's that 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 I think is also a real contradiction worth noting. The Texas decision was the first decision uh, that came down. Uh, courts in Alabama and Ohio have also enjoined COVID bans, but in Texas, after the governor issued the policy and the attorney general interpreted it as applying to all abortions. Uh, except those necessary to save the pregnant person's life. A suit was immediately brought and uh, the federal district court in a pretty short but to the point opinion enjoined the policy as causing irreparable harm, preliminary, a preliminary injunction, and said just very directly that a ban on pre-viability abortions is unconstitutional, that that is power that the state did not have under the Constitution, and that furthermore, the policy to not enjoin it would cause, as I read uh, earlier, would cause pregnant people to suffer harm that uh, could, could not be repaired. And so met the, basically met the 
the, the standard for a preliminary injunction. The next day, the Fifth Circuit, in a two-to-one uh, decision, as you note, in a very short opinion, said that they did not believe that there would be irreparable harm and essentially overturned the district courts uh, and, and uh, kept the policy in place, stayed the district court's order. So the news reports that I mentioned of panicked patients really come from Texas because the, the policy is now in place and clinics are canceling their appointments. The Fifth Circuit should uh, review the policy again, and both the district court and Fifth Circuit have made a nod towards the possibility that the Supreme Court could hear this on an emergency basis. Is this something that could go back to the Fifth Circuit en banc? Yes, I think so. I don't know if this is going to be too off topic, but I just sort of wanted to mention that in the larger context of the abortion legal landscape, there's been a push to bring these sort of cases to the Supreme Court. Uh, We saw it with the passing of all these blatantly unconstitutional fetal heartbeat bans, which start very early in gestation, um, as well as a total ban in in Alabama, um, as well as the trap law that is currently going to be decided at the Supreme Court, even though, you know, the Supreme Court had decided on this exact thing. So I think that this is just also part of that continued strategy to take advantage of a a now conservative Supreme Court. Well, let's push on that a little bit just to close, may we? Um, and take your, your your last few comments. Mary Ziegler uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago, uh, quote, remember the court signed off on exercises of government power during the war on terror that might have otherwise raised an eyebrow, including swing votes on abortion. The pandemic might give the court cover to uphold an abortion ban now. I think that is entirely possible. The district court in Texas, for instance, Judge Eagle, whose preliminary injunction or is uh, very squarely in the vein of Casey and Roe and the rights of, of, of patients to have pre-viable abortions without uh, a state ban, noted that he would not make, he would not opine on whether there was a silent emergency pa- emergency situation exception to the constitutional right to a pre-viable abortion. And so there is a there there is teeing up this window of interpreting Casey and and uh, abortion jurisprudence as having an implied exception for a national emergency. It seems to me a, a somewhat of a stretch in ter- if you're thinking about it purposefully, but the, but that is on the table and it's it's been being debated, I think, in courts now. Adrian, Adrian and Patty, uh, a couple of last thoughts? We're seeing folks who have been trying to ban abortion at all levels, uh, teeing up, as Rachel put it, um, not wanting to waste this crisis to move forward politically. Uh, and um, and it's, it's going to be a disaster um, as we move forward and we see people who have unwanted pregnancies who aren't able to get services um, because because of the using this crisis as a political moment um, when we really should be focused on healthcare for people, including abortion. I would just say that if you've ever been in the position to need an abortion, you understand without doubt that abortion is an essential service. Um, and it's a shame that legislators and politicians right now are under the guise of protecting public health, attempting to further restrict abortion access. But, um, you know, we know this is 
is also not anything new. Could I just add one thing? The contradiction for me is that you have a policy that will essentially have, create two avenues for pregnant people. Carry a pregnancy to term or self-manage abortion, sometimes with uh, could be often with success, but sometimes without success. And in that situation, they will need follow-up care. Uh, in both scenarios, unplanned parenthood and self-managed abortion that doesn't go right, you are going to have to rely on the healthcare system for prenatal care or for follow-up or emergency care. So you have a policy designed to conserve physician resources and to preserve and conserve personal protective equipment that will undoubtedly relate in using those resources to a far greater extent than medication abortion or aspiration abortion could do. That is, I think, a contradiction that as an, as an emergency measure is hard to square. And that was The Week in Health Law. You can find my very fine guests on Twitter at R-R-E-B-O-U-C-H-E. We'll uh, find Professor Rabouche. Uh, Patty is at P-S-K-U-S-T-E-R. And Adrian is at A-G-H-O-R-A-S-H-I-E-S-Q. Thank you so much for a most informative, albeit rather sad, discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy and in these strange times, safe and sane week.